Hello, fans. Today, we're talking to Rick Robinson, out-of-home media executive, public speaker, author, and sculptor. I interviewed Rick during his time at Billups, where he served as partner and chief strategy officer for more than seven years. He's since moved on from the organization to consult and take on some new ventures, but his passion for out-of-home sustains. We spent quite a bit of time on this episode talking about his time at Billups. And if you aren't familiar with the organization, it's an out-of-home advertising company focused on strategy, planning, buying, and ad tech. I've actually known Rick for a long time because of his role at Billups. He would often come to our Amen conferences and talk about media buying, creativity, and the future of media in general. But little did I know that Rick was also an artist. He really has a passion for honing in on the intersection of art, commerce, and media. He talks on this show about a passion project he's supporting on the Sunset Strip in LA, as well as some of his own personal passions to use outdoor media to create a movement. He's got some really interesting stories to tell and has a great perspective on the ever-increasing importance of the digital screen. He contends, this digital channel gives us a great opportunity to control the message. I'm personally excited to have an episode focused on media, and specifically digital media, and I can't wait for you to meet Rick, someone I consider one of the foremost experts in this space. Listen in. I am so excited to talk to you. As I was researching you over the past few days, I am amazed at all the things you do. And I can see some of your artwork in the background. So I'm just sure. super excited to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thrilled to be here. So tell me a little bit about your personal story. I want to know a little bit about you know where you grew up and sort of how you came to be who you are in the world. Wow. That's, that's so it's kind a big of fun. Question. Yeah, it's fun <laughs> to get that question, right? Uh, out of the gate. Right. I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Lodi, well, the Central Valley of California, Sacramento, Stockton, Lodi area. I don't know if you know okay. what that is, but I don't. it's very uh, agricultural. Okay. Orchards, a lot of orchards and cool. very open spaces. And, you know, with all that sensibility that came with it. And, you know, as a kid, my uh, my father was a welder and built race cars. And then my stepdad was also in the steel fabrication business and built like, he had a shop and a crew and they built farm equipment and everything to wow. do with the agricultural industry. And we drove on this one freeway all the time, the 99 freeway. Uh-huh. When I was a kid, you know, any free moment I was with him going to the shop and he employed like 20 or 30 guys at one point. Anyway, there were billboards. Yeah. And so I saw those and I saw them every day. And I became fascinated with typography and signs and lettering and things like that. And I'd been fascinated with that since I was a kid. So after high school, I went to work in a steel mill. So I had more of that in my headspace. I was, you know, a blue collar guy for a while and going to junior college at the same time. What I think is fascinating about what you just talked about is that you had a love of billboards or at least art and imagery from a young age. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. You know, and it was symbols. I, I can recall this yield sign near the cul-de-sac where I grew up. And this is like I was six, seven or eight years old. And it's a red triangle and it says yield in the middle. And I noticed my dad would stop sometimes and not stop sometimes at that corner. And I, and I what what does yield mean? Why? And he explained to me that it was different than a stop sign. and And you knew that because it was a red triangle. And that always just kind of totally intrigued me. Like, how do people know based on the color and the shape? And so as a kid, I always drew stuff, you know, but I didn't really want to draw portraits or still lives. I was fascinated by signs. 
and That's lettering so cool. and drop shadows and wayfinding messages like exit or enter or road signs, structures and things out of steel like that always just really turned me on. Well, this whole story is going to come full circle when we talk about your career passions along with your personal interests. But let's uh, fill the audience in a little bit on your career background and how you took this interest and sort of grew it into where you are today, which is Billups. Sure. So, you know, I was in college and we took a tour of a marketing class, took a tour of a billboard company. Okay. And I walked in the door and first of all, they were having a party in the paint studio at two in the afternoon. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I looked around and they had Teamsters. And since I'd worked in the steel mill, it was okay. I connected with them. Sure. It was big steel things, which I was very familiar with from my childhood. They worked with a lot of local businesses. And my dad had had my and my stepfather both had local businesses. Uh, there were hand painters. It just all made sense. That's and so, so cool. I, I just decided I was going to do that. You know, we're all looking for that. Like, what am I going to do? And, and right. everything aligned. So I just started harassing them. <laughs> it was Gannett Outdoor in Berkeley in okay. 1986. And, and I just started, you know, calling the sales manager. Like, you have to hire me. I want to do this. Why, how do I do this? Why can't I? I didn't get a job there right away, but I got a job for a company called Ackerley Airport Advertising. Okay. And they put signs in airports. And this was all through California. And back then, you know, airports weren't dwell time places. You know, now an airport is a mall and you can get a massage and buy a $1,200 suit or whatever you want to do. But back then it was, you know, maybe there was a restaurant and people were quick in and out of the airports. But nonetheless, you know, I learned a lot. I had to do everything. I had to sell the space, do the creative, get it printed, collect the money, work with the airport authority. They had to move a wall. I would hire the contractor. So I learned the business end to end. And after a couple of years of that, went to another company. And, and this was all in Northern California. Went to another company in San Francisco called TDI that sold buses and cable cars and taxis and the BART system. And then jumped to Gannett, which had the big painted bulletins. And so that yeah. was the show, right? That was the game. Right. Shortly thereafter, got to LA for Gannett. What did God make first, billboards or LA? <laughs> so, you know, it was sure. a place to go for a, a young person with a love of the medium. And opportunities just kept coming. And I kept saying yes. So I, I got involved with public advocacy at the city council meetings, leasing walls on the Sunset Strip, projecting film on the side of buildings, uh, running the creative team, developing new business, designing the structures. It just kept going. And, uh, and it was just a heck of a lot of fun. And yeah. then after about 15 years of doing that, a change came in 01, and I jumped from the supply side to the demand side okay. and um, joined up with an agency out of New York called McDonald Media that was an independent out-of-home agency Yeah, built out on the West Coast from nothing. It was me and a laptop in my studio in wow. 01. And by the time I left in 13, we had 10 people up and down the West Coast and 20, 30 million in billing. And it had worked. And then in the early 2010s, I met Ben Billups and his vision was amazing. He wanted to really do what we've done, which is to take technology, data science and software and merge that with talent, that out of home tribal knowledge. And so if you bring that together, that's something really powerful. So right. I jumped ship, joined Ben and here we are. 
Yeah. So for those people who don't know Billups, talk a little bit about the business model. You know, as I was out just perusing your website, preparing for today, I knew you were an out-of-home company, but I had no idea sort of how data-driven you are. And it seems like that's really at the core of your whole digital delivery model. You know, Billups is an independently held uh, out-of-home planning and buying agency at its, its core legacy. And in the last several years, we've become an ad tech provider as well. So we have our own in-house data science team. We've got a big commitment to, you know, collecting the data. We have mobile data sources. Uh, We've earned several patents in the space in terms of tracking device IDs and their exposure to out-of-home media and what happens after they see the medium. And so now we use data science to inform the planning process, you know, help understand which inventory makes the most sense, track exposures, and then what happens after people are exposed. So they go to a website or a store or download an app or whatever that might be. So we've really taken this layer of data science, which is certainty, sure, and put that on top of the, the gravitas of out-of-home planning. Because right. most brands go to out-home, you know, they want that big moment, right? I want to see myself in lights. <laughs> sure. And everybody understands that emotive desire to put out of home in the plan. Uh, now we have the discipline of the data. Yeah. Well, all I've ever known of you, Rick, so I met you at Amen conferences, right? You come and you mm-hmm. speak about your product offerings. And I always thought of you as like a media ad guy, but I had no idea how your story, which you just shared, has informed so much of sort of your commitment to this industry and really the power of what out of home can do when you start integrating that creative artistry with your advocacy and and so many of your missions. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's very cool. Well, thank you. One of the things that I was fascinated by when you and I were exchanging some emails preparing for today is that you're really thinking about huge macro trends in this space. And so one of those is this idea of the public perception of advertising. So what is driving that in you? You know, I, as I was thinking about it from a, an, a traditional advertising agency, we think so often about our message and getting it out using these platforms, but you're really thinking about it from the consumer's point of view and how this platform, you know, is, is changing and, and how people want to receive it. Is that right? Sure. And, and I guess it comes from spending my whole career in out of home, you know, out of home isn't supported by other editorial in general. It's supported by context. And maybe the venue you see it in is part of that, but it really appropriates space. And as a result, there's there's an obligation and a duty, in my view, for the medium and the message to earn its right to be there. Yeah. And so that goes back to utility. Let's put it this way. People don't wake up in the morning with a list of things to do. And on that list, it says consume irrelevant advertising messages. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. We might think it does. When we sit in our conference room and talk about the objectified target audience, that they're just waiting for our juicy message to come their way. But the reality is they're not thinking about us at all, and they've got their problems to deal with. Yes. So how, how do you break through and how do you become relevant? And, and I've always approached it with this notion that it's not our space, it's the public space, it's the people's space. Mm, yeah. It's not about us, it's about them. Right. And what are they looking for? And, and And if I could sum it up briefly, I think they want time, fun, or money. Okay. So save me some time, inform me of something, make it interesting, make me laugh, create some intrigue, use humor, let me pause a moment, surprise me, disrupt expectations, something like that. Right. And money is just a, you know, a reference for value. 
Sure. Uh, but it's it's time, fun, or money that will trigger people to say, hey, wait a minute, I will stop what I'm doing. I will give you my attention when I'm out in the public space. And I might even take a picture of it and share it. Yeah. And what we find is when you can create that aesthetic value for folks, they will immediately grab that image and make it part of their conversation and their social media. And that's something unique to out of home. And I've never seen or heard of anyone screen grabbing a, a banner ad on their phone and then sharing that later. Sure. Well, and you've given countless talks at Amen conferences about people engaging with the out of home media. So give us a sense of, you know, the scale of Billups organization and all of the places you guys can put messaging. You know, we tend to think of like traditional and digital billboards, but you're talking about vehicles and hotels and events and all the things, right? Basically, anywhere the public intercepts the brand visually when they're out of their home. And so, yeah, sure, that can be on the roadway or on a city street in a mall, an airport, an arena, a stadium, at an event, city centers, train stations, anywhere the public comes together. Generally, there's either some sort of existing inventory or we'll create the inventory to capture that moment. And, you know, and Billups has a footprint all over the U.S. where we integrate with all 1,600 suppliers in the out-of-home space. And now we have global partnerships. In fact, we just planted a poll in Europe. Our founder, Ben Billups, has been over there for the last year, COVID or no COVID, getting that off the ground. That's awesome. So how do you encourage marketers to think about outdoor advertising? You've been in this industry a long time. You've seen a lot of things work and not work, probably. Sure, as we're concepting and we're sitting around those creative tables and we think about this medium in particular, what should we be thinking about? Ask yourself what role being in the public space will provide for you. Like, Mm -hmm. how does that matter for you? Because there's something, there's a statement there. You know, when you put up a message that's there 24 seven, it's, it's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You, You can change it if it's a digital message, but you've made a commitment. It's out there. You can't, um, delete it off the social feed. It's there. It's been done. It exists. There's something physical and visceral to that. Yeah. And so I think it starts there. Like, how do we want to put ourselves in the public domain? Yeah. There's a commitment. Right. It it is. There's a commitment and there's, it's sort of an investor mindset in a way because you're signaling something to the public. You're saying, I stand behind this so much. I'm going to say it. 24-7 on this big wall on the freeway or whatever variation of out of home you're looking at. And once you start there, then it can start boiling down to, well, where's the right place and the right time and the right message and how do we get the right media value and so on and so forth. But I really think it starts at the beginning, which is how do I want to be seen in the public space and how do I want to add to that environment? What's my contribution in the public space? It's such a different mindset shift than even yesterday as I was researching you. I wasn't thinking about how big of a commitment it is to put a message into outdoor. Um, So that's definitely going to change the way I consult with clients. One of the things you also noted to me is that out-of-home media is becoming a public-facing network, almost similar to the original broadcast TV. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. I never thought I would see the day. I don't know that the rest of the industry agrees with me yet or not, <laughs> but sure. here, here's what I see happening. With the conversion to digital screens, mm-hmm. they're now becoming abundant almost everywhere. Now, sure, more so in the major markets, but when you go into an airport, 
more often than not, there's more digital screens coming in malls, in stadiums or arenas, in train stations, and and all the public intercept points where there's any kind of dwell time, and now on the freeways as well. You know, it represents 15, 20% of the hardware and 35, 40% of the revenue for out of home across the country. So, and, and all the new investments going there. So, so that's becoming the messenger that people yeah. are seeing. Yeah. And what they're also starting to see is this mix, this merger of, of commerce and public safety messaging and wayfinding and art and business. And, and so the screen is now the source of all information. Sure. And, sure. And so when that happens, the screens become the screen, singular. Yeah. That yeah. me as an individual, as a citizen, when I'm on the streets of New York City, I, I can know that these screens are going to give me information. And so, for example, mm-hmm. if there's a, a warning about weather, if there's criminal activity, any kind of public address system, it's there and available. If there's a moment for art, or public mm-hmm. service messaging, or messages about the city that are of social issues of the day, that's available. And now all the advertising messaging has the opportunity to become contextual as well. Yeah. You know, and speak about what's going on right here, right now, maybe even right that moment yeah. in the public space. So I think the more utility the out of home messaging, especially the digital messaging provides to the public, the more they're going to keep looking at that screen. Sure. And those screens in, in aggregate. So that then provides the opportunity for those media owners out front, JC Deco, Clear Channel, Branded Cities, Orange Barrel, you name it, intersection, to become recognized as a brand. Why can't one day the public understand that those screens are are owned and operated by a particular vendor or publisher? And now I expect certain things from them. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Being from Peoria, Illinois, we don't often think that way because we're not surrounded by these screens, right? We're in a smaller community, but I totally understand where you're going with that, where when advertising was started, it was the big three medium, right? And everything is becoming the screen now. So that's very cool. And I think you have a really great example of this. You sent me a a little story you're doing about the work you're consulting on related to Sunset Boulevard on Hollywood Strip, where in this one experience, you are bridging the integration of architecture, art, advertising, all of the the disciplines you talked about. Tell us that story. Tell us how that's happening near you and what role you played on that work. Sure. So it's, it's look, it's unprecedented. I think the city mm-hmm. of West Hollywood is showing incredible vision and the property owners and all of the out-of-home media companies participating are part of this as well, a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is most people know the Sunset Strip is populated by a lot of big, giant walls and billboards. Yeah. And in many ways, if you're an entertainer or a musician or in fashion or any kind of public-facing brand like that, you haven't made it until you're on the Sunset Strip, right? right? Every major movie launches on the Strip. So it's the place. Some people say it's the Times Square of the West. I would offer the Times Square is the Sunset Strip of the East. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, it's all been printed and painted walls and, and billboards up until now. And so mm-hmm. they have not converted much of it to digital screens. Okay. But that's coming. And the reason why is they were very thoughtful and careful about it. So in the last few years, they brought together a group from the industry, from the public, from architecture and design, 
architectural historian from LA County, all the different stakeholders, and started discussing how could this evolve? How could you bring large-scale digital billboards, digital out of home mm-hmm. media, to the Sunset Strip, but do it in a way that honors the legacy of the Strip? Because that's yeah. always been front on culture, whether it's music or comedy or food, fashion, film. The Strip has always been the place where the leaders in those segments have been seen. Mm-hmm. So how do you do it from a big digital out-of-home point of view? So the outcome has been magnificent. There's several uh, permits that have been issued. About a third of the strip hopefully can be converted in the next few years. Each structure is unique to itself, giant, circular, spherical, curvilinear, abstract-shaped. And so they're all landmarks into themselves. 17.5% of the media time is guaranteed to be dedicated for public art. Wow, that's amazing. It's about 2 million minutes a year. Wow, of public that's so art. cool. It's never happened before. So that creates all kinds of programming opportunities. Right. Each one of these projects has a public benefit, like a small park or a gallery or an amphitheater or something that provides value to the citizens and the tourists of the area. And there's also revenue sharing that's going to the city. So when you put all those together... That's an unprecedented relationship and bond between the city, the people of the city, the tourists, the business owners, the property owners, the advertisers, the artists, everybody involved. And I really see it as a model for what you're going to continue to see going forward, because the more woven the utility is, the stronger it's going to be. And if you think about Mm -hmm. the history of -of out-of-home media, it's been somewhat abrupt. Assign mm-hmm. the public an ad message, look or yeah. don't look. And that's a very uh, transactional ecosystem. Now what you've done is put all these levels of utility that connect with each other, that rely on each other, that are interdependent. And I just think it creates a foundation for access and uh, availability, unity. Mm-hmm. And, that's and, so you cool. Know, and I'm a little over the top with it, I know. <laughs> Well, I can tell you're passionate about it. And it really does make a huge difference in a city. You know, I I think I shared with you prior to the call, we have something similar. It's not digital in scale, but in Peoria, we have an initiative called Big Picture Peoria, where we're putting huge murals on the outside of buildings in hopes of creating some placemaking, right? And I think that that's similar to what you're doing. And these little projects are popping up all over the country. They are everywhere. And, And it's exactly that. It's about owning the space and using either commerce, advertising, or art, or a mix of it to create that public moment. And it does all kinds of things. It defines space, it increases public safety, and increases pride and morale, uh, increases architectural value. You could go on and on and on. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that about 25 years ago, even more, <clears throat> I started advocating for artists on billboards. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it would be a way to create more interest in the medium, that the public would like billboards more if there was art on it. Also, being an artist myself, I wanted to see the art on it. (laughs) And um, I also thought the billboard companies had an obligation to the public to give back a little bit. Right. And at the time, you know, it was seen as sort of a soft thing. Right. Kind of like, all right, put some artists on those billboards. It'll shut Rick up and, you know, we'll do it. Right. But the public responded immediately, responded well. And now fast forward all these years and it's seen as good for business. And yeah, so, for sure. um, and, you know, it's gratifying to see 
I think really what's happened is that the public and the cities and the out-of-home companies have come together and understood that their futures are intertwined. Yes. Yes. I love that. Well, and you have a really personal example that you sort of led over the past year with the Vote As If campaign. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you integrated your very artistic soul and used your connections and influence across the country to bring to light art in a very public way. Can you tell us about that? That just kind of happened. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, as an artist, I do these iconic steel shapes I call primitive pop. They're like outlines of shapes and they have color and and they mount on the wall. So that's what I do. And I can see them behind you right now. That's you awesome. You can see them behind me. Yes. And, I love them. And then in the out-of-home media space, I'm really a junkie for iconography and the images, which goes back to my childhood, which we spoke about. Sure. And so part of my routine is literally about once a week, maybe less than that, two or three times a month, I'll just get in my car and go for a ride and I'll look around. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. on the billboards? What's happening on on-premise signage? I'm just fascinated by the signage and what that signals about a city or a community or a neighborhood. It can really tell you quite a lot. And so when the demonstrations were happening this summer, last year, they hit Hollywood very hard and Melrose and those areas. So it was about 5 a.m. one Saturday morning. I thought, I've got to go down and look because I knew that plywood on the store windows was becoming a messenger and it was a place for messages to land, whether it was graffiti or paste up posters or stencils or what have you. So I just wanted to go see this. See what was up. Yeah. And I'm driving around and I saw all these fists, Mm. an abundance of these fists. And I thought, wow, that is, that's the logo, right? Of what's going on right now. And it dawned on me, like, how do these young kids know of the 68 Olympics with John Carlos and Tommy Smith, first of all, like how do they even know that symbol? And it's a very powerful symbol. It's defiant. uh, It's resistant. It's fierce. It's a little frightening in some ways. It's not a trifle. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to get my coffee and go to my studio and, and I'll make my own fist. And so I did. And as I was cutting out the shape, I thought, oh, this should be pink. Because what What drove the pink? You know, what drove the pink was I wanted to disrupt. Okay. I thought making it black would have been uh, a little too easy. Sure. Sure. And and maybe even disingenuous. Right. And so I thought, wait a minute, what is everybody fighting for? How can I use color to make people look at this and confuse them for a moment and maybe get the message across? And aren't we just fighting for love, right? Why aren't we fighting for understanding and appreciation? And so anyway, very quickly, I realized that this wasn't meant to be a sculpture. It was meant to be a poster. So I turned it into a poster that had some bougainvillea on it and was on the sidewalk. And I thought, there's a cool poster of a pink fist. Yeah. And my idea was, is that I would, I would print a hundred posters and then I would go down to Melrose myself and be old school and glue them up and you know, risk getting caught and, you know, do what I did when I was in my 20s. And almost immediately, I realized it was more than that, that this could have a social message to it. So I put the word vote over the top of the pink fist. Mm. And then it was like, wow, this is powerful. And this is of the time. Well, simultaneous to that, some friends of mine were trying to start a nonprofit to do something good 
in relation to everything that was going on. And we didn't know what that would be. We just knew we wanted to do something. Use our superpowers for good. So in our first phone call, I showed them the poster. And they're like, oh, we love that. Can we use it? I'm like, yes. So we started a nonprofit called Vote As If with the goal of raising money to just help register voters, nonpartisan, just vote in any way that you prefer. We printed the posters. We made T-shirts and hats and hoodies, and we started selling them to raise money. The image started getting shared amongst some billboard companies. And by the end of it, and we were only in existence for a few months. It started in August, and the election was in November. So we raised about $60,000. We ended up having the billboards go up in about 25 cities with about 100 million ad impressions. It all happened because I went down to Melrose one morning (laughs) early on a Saturday and I saw these fist stencils. So I give credit to the kids who put the stencils up. Actually, I think it goes back to John Carlos and Tommy Smith in the 68 Olympics, but uh, that's the story. (laughs) That is so cool. Well, I love that story because I think it provides a lot of creative inspiration to those of us listening who, I mean, you created a movement, um, you know, just with an image and being able to, I saw the presentation you shared where people were interacting with Mm -hmm. this image and taking the selfies and all the things. And I think that speaks volumes for the importance of outdoor as we go forward, not just from an advertising perspective, but like, like you mentioned, more from a cause perspective. Well, I think people look at the medium and there's a different mindset now. They want something. Yeah. They want a little more than just an ad message. They want to be time, fun, or money, make me laugh, entertain me. Like, why are you here in my space? You've taken away my sky. What are you going to do with it? And I'm open to you doing something cool with it. I'm not adversarial, but just add, add, add to my day. Yeah. Well, you, you raise the question, is it okay to make advertising and marketing funny again? What is that? Is that, is that a post COVID reference or has things gotten really serious? It's a bit of a post COVID reference. I think if you looked in the last year, you would notice and. And in fact, this year I, I hosted the Obie Awards for the OAAA, and, and most of the entries reflected the times. Yeah. And all media, all, all media channels, out-of-home media in particular, is usually a history book of what's happening at that moment, uh, at That's that so time. Cool. Yeah. And first you saw wash your hands, wear a mask, be safe, even ironically message that said, stay home, you know, on billboards, stay home, stay inside. <laughs> which is antithetical, but you understand why it happened. And then then a lot of references and wonderful references to frontline workers, people in hospitals, fire and police. Um, And then through the summer, all kinds of social messages, the BLM, diversity and inclusion, and so on and so forth. And so it really became a medium of a very difficult year. And probably not a place where you would make light of things. No. It didn't no. seem like the right time. Sure. Or or equivalently, come in with a hard sell. That kind of stood out as well. Like, okay, wait a minute. You, are you tone deaf? Do you not know what's going on around us? Because, because when people are out in, in public space, it's a concurrent experience. Yeah. And so even though I consume the medium intimately, it's one, it's me, it's my experience, but everybody around me, so I'm thinking collectively. And I'm doing things that are collective by nature. I'm following the rules of the road. I'm not bumping into people when I'm in the airport or the mall. I'm wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. I'm being polite. I'm watching public space. So that's all part of your filter as you're seeing these messages. And so 
the question I've just had is, when's it going to be okay to laugh at a billboard again? And I guess I've asked a lot of people and, you know, the answer is, well, it was always okay. Mm. Boy, oh boy, more than ever now. Yeah, we need it, don't we? (laughs) We need it. And, you know, if you can make people laugh and just a little pun or chuckle, I think is plenty good. Sure. And again, it goes back to the thing. Are you going to give me time, fun, or money? Did you add to my day? Yeah. Are you earning your right to be there as a message? And if you've added to the people's space, then you have. And it goes back to even the more core question, which is, it's not about me. It's not about the brand. It's about the public. Definitely. I think I shared with you, we are actually very heavy into B2B marketing. So a lot of these examples that you give that are very consumer focused, I try to backwards engineer that to say, like, how would our sort of heavy industry clients perceive this, right? But we're always pushing humor, you know, because you got to break through that clutter. You can't look like everyone else. I'm curious from your background, give us some examples that you've seen from more of that business to business audience and how outdoor can work just as effectively in those spaces. Sure. Well, it it does start with place. It does start with place. So for example, some places that are heavy B2B and out of home, pretty much anything on the 101 freeway in San Francisco going through Silicon Valley into the city. Sure. Anybody who works in tech at any level is going to see that messaging. It's also a place to kind of plant your flag and say, hey, we exist. We've just got our series defunding or our IPOs coming or (laughs) whatever it might be. And some of those messages are incredibly specific about very B2B tech products that maybe only a very narrow audience would even understand or have ever heard of or even care to hear about. But nonetheless, it still works on that piece of geography. Yes. The same happens in Hollywood. The same happens in Midtown for financial messages. Right. The same happens in the Midwest for agricultural messages. Or at a construction site, right? Mm-hmm. You know? We've, yeah, we've we seen really that targeted. as well. Uh, we've done some things, you know, literally on the barricades at construction sites. Yeah. Or at truck stops. That's another place that we spend a lot of time thinking You're about. figuring it out, Misty. <laughs> <laughs> it is about place. Absolutely. I say once you get into that place, then you can start to disrupt, mm. you know, and have fun with that. Like, there was a campaign that's an OB finalist this year, which was in a rural part of the U.S., and it was a message to farmers about a certain type of fertilizer. Yeah. And so very, very specific. They took a bulletin, a, a big billboard, and they had this giant corn stalk going through the middle of it as that's if it awesome. was the pole holding up the board. And so when you first look at it, you're like, wait a minute. Is that what is that? Is that, that's too big. Is that a real? Oh my God, that fertilizer grew. Oh no, it didn't. Oh, it's a prop. So you go through all that disruption and answering the question and figuring it out. And maybe you don't figure it out the first time you drive by it, but if you live there and you drive by it frequently, maybe the third time you figure it out, but boy, once you do, it sticks. And and that all starts with place. I love that. It sounds similar to a campaign we ran for one of our clients, LG Seeds. They're a seed company. But yeah, we had a a big corn stalk on the back of a truck on a billboard. I mean, it's stopping. You know, it's the stopping power of getting into people when they're driving past it at 60 miles an hour to think about something they typically wouldn't think about. Yeah, you want to create that finger point. What is that? Why is it there? And then if it's relevant, then it really gets some topspin. I mean, we've done things where we've painted corn silos, you know, to look like a stalk of corn. Taken the, str- you know, there, there's a physicality 
to out-of-home media, the, the steel of the structures, the pole, the signs, even if it's a little kiosk, it's got a frame and it's on a cement base. Yeah. So there's this physicality that can be manipulated. That's so and neat. And if it's got anything to do with heavy construction or or anything in, um, you know, any fabrication mode, uh, then you can always find a way to apply it. Yeah. Do you still get to jump in and be part of the creative ideation process? Our agency focuses on the media, but we do a lot of, I, I'm the resident talk to Rick about creative guy thing. And, <laughs> I bet um, you love that. That part's a lot of fun. And, and really what it's about is bringing their idea to life. Yeah. So, you know, I want to get with the creative people, understand what their vision is, why. And then, I mean, you know, I always tell the story. There was, at some points, there was a request that got to our media team that said, could we build a 50-foot tomato? <laughs> and I was like, grow it or out of plastic or... <laughs> So we're trying to figure it out. And then finally, I asked the question, well, why? Help us understand, because that's going to help us decide how to do it. And then what it really got back to is they just wanted something large and red. Okay. And so I think what happens is, is that when the, the ass starts trickling through the media channels, it can get oversimplified or distorted. Right. And so it's really good if you can get back to the beginning and say, okay, what what's the core challenge Definitely. the message we're trying to get through. And then, then then let's look at our tools. Do we have the side of a building? Do we have, what do we have to work with? And pragmatically, how much money do we have? Yeah, no, it's so true. I was just talking to a media partner the other day about what are you getting from us? It's not just a, please place this media in this channel. We should be having a collaborative conversation about the possibilities there. I encourage anybody who's working through an agency to push them to do that because sometimes the media partners can bring crazy, cool, creative ideas that you know the agency partner wouldn't have thought of. If we can just make the time for it sometimes. <laughs> That's the challenge, <laughs> right? for sure. Yep. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is your event services. So some of the coolest things I think we've been able to do with you in the past is actually some of the trade show planning out of Vegas and that sort of thing. So talk a little bit about that side of your world and what you can bring to brands that are doing some big event trade shows. Well, what's exciting is that it's starting to come back. So yes, I think we're thank all God. anticipating that. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, really what it boils down to is, is identifying the place and surrounding it somehow. You know, mm -hmm. can you get inside? That can be more difficult and that sometimes requires sponsorship level participation, but certainly there's a lot you can do on the outside. And right. so it's case by case, venue by venue. You mm -hmm. know, in some cases there might be a lot of existing out of home to work with. In other cases, there's nothing. Yeah. So you've got to create it. I mean, we've done things like wrap Teslas with chauffeurs and then use social media to provide VIP rides from the airport to the hotel to the venue, all in a really cool going Tesla. That's awesome. Yeah. So that becomes very memorable. Yeah. Very experiential. And, and you know, something they'll talk about, right? Something they'll talk about. And then sometimes, you know, you can hijack a conference. So maybe if it's your competitor's conference, but you want to get in front of it, you know, you can use some level of out of home media of whatever sort to, to be seen. Kind of a hit I've and run approach done. almost. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Not always appreciated, but certainly a lot of fun if you're perpetrating it. I'll never forget, we visited the Tableau Conference in Austin one year and Domo took over the town and it was amazing to be there sponsored by another technology and be able to go to the hospitality events and just see that branding everywhere. I was pretty impressed. So it gets back to with Out of Home Media. The, the earlier I said Out of, Out of Home Media has no editorial supporting it which technically it doesn't, mm -hmm. 
but it does in terms of context and place. Yeah. Because that worked because of where you saw it and when. Yeah. Because I was in that mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you, uh, I was just talking to one of our, our clients, the chief creative officer at an agency we work with, and he called it the triangulation of message, place, and mindset. Right. And if you can, you can marry that, it becomes a very powerful thing because you're touching people in multiple ways and they have to kind of figure it out because mm-hmm. it took you a moment probably to say, Hey, wait a minute, why are they here? They're not <laughs> supposed to be here. Oh, I see what they did. Yeah. You admired the, uh, the swagger and all of that, I suppose. I did. You know what? I went to the party, so it was fun. <laughs> Definitely. Do you guys collaborate or work with the other media outlets as you're, you know, putting campaigns together for outdoor? How do you make all those things work together? You mean the other channels? Yes. Sure. Well, that's where you get with the media team at the agencies we work with, or if it's a brand direct and just understand what's happening. Sure. And so that's, that's always part of the the vetting and the brief. What else right. is going on in other places? What does it look like? Right. What's our role in it? You know, what's the expectation of our role in it? And try to get as much clarity on that as possible because it, it does inform the planning. That's always an ongoing effort. What is your favorite campaign that you've ever been a part of or helped execute? Oh, my gosh. That should be like the easiest question in the world. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's dozens but that you could right. point back to, but something that you were just thought was really creative or inspiring. You know, there's something we did for Brand Jordan uh, okay. several years ago in Chicago on the Prudential Tower. And it was for, I, I think it was called the World Basketball Festival. Mm. And the assignment was relatively simple in concept. They wanted us to recreate the Jumpman logo. Okay. Uh, on the side of a building by turning the lights on and off. Yeah. And so you could create the pattern. I've seen that done before. Yeah. And what you've probably seen done is, you know, some lettering, right? That's very squared sure. off. But this was an image with a round ball. Wow. And the flying Jumpman logo, which is all angles. So how do yeah. you solve for that? And in a very short period of time, and we worked with a very reliable partner we use, and we were able to figure out how to map out all of the windows, block out each one of them with the right angles. So it created this lattice work of the image and have the lights on and off perfectly. You know, it had to happen in a very short period of time. It had to, uh, you know, had to be installed in one night and tested. So it was either going to be very right or very wrong. Sure. We ended up with some great drone footage of it. And it was a spectacular monument. I've always been very, very proud of that because our teams pulled it off. It was a singular moment. And, and you know what was interesting is that that would not be as interesting if it was in any other city except Chicago. Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, right, it's about Chicago, place. It's about place because that was a monument. That was Michael yeah. Jordan. Absolutely. That was my era growing up. Loved Michael <laughs> so, Jordan. <laughs> and so there's so much power in that. And then recently, some of the work we do with with Nike – they have a giant digital screen in downtown LA across from Staples Center, LA Live, LA Convention Center, mm-hmm. which has been relatively quiet during COVID and is now ramping up very, very quickly. But people kept going down there anyway as the Lakers won the championship and the Dodgers won the World Series because that's where people go to celebrate sports moments in Los Angeles. Yeah. And even though nothing was happening there, people were down there anyway. And And that's been created in the last three years by Nike using this giant digital screen to show winning sports moments. So they've created this monument to sports. But what's more interesting, and I have one more, is most recently for Realtor.com, 
we did a digital program happened very quickly with the NFL draft. And so as players were drafted, the number one pick went to Jacksonville. So realtor.com put up a message in Jacksonville, reaching out to the guy with the golden locks, uh, Trevor Lawrence, who they picked saying, Hey, come to us. We might help you find your new home. Wow. How cool. Yeah. Then it went city to city based on the picks. Yeah. Now that's forward thinking because it had context, right? That's so cool. And you had to kind of figure it out, right? I'm sure when people on the street saw it, they're like, wait a minute, what the hell? Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. And maybe not everybody got it and that's fine. But those who did really understood that Realtor.com is in the moment of the now. They're digitally native in how they think. Yeah. And they're on point. And it says all of that by just executing that campaign. Absolutely. Well, even in the examples that you share, Rick, that I can tell you're integrating the two sides of you, right? You love this media space that you live in, but you also love, you know, the art and the shapes and the strategy behind it all. So as you think ahead to sort of the next several years of your career, what are you going to keep working on that helps bring those two sides of you together? What's your future look like? (laughs) I should have a better answer for that. (laughs) It's really an integrated you. I mean, you definitely have a brand platform to continue to build on all the different elements of your Yeah, work. I just keep going. I mean, yeah. I know that that doesn't sound as thoughtful as maybe it should be. But in my view, you know, and people ask me this all the time, like, how do you balance work and art and public speaking sure, and, and all these different things? And I just have never seen that as the challenge at all. Like to me, that sets up this weird didactic that's unnecessary, like work versus play or personal versus career or this work-life balance, all these things. It makes you keep score, in my view, kind of unnecessarily. And the way I see it, it's just one big Rick day. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to do what you need to do to get through the day. Yeah, you're just going to power through all of it. And it's all relevant. And it's all kind of the same toolkit. It's place, it's messaging, it's shape, color, rhythm, motion, it's transaction, it's people, it's seeing it in the macro and the micro. And my primary gargantuan passion is for the success of Billups and, and like everybody bouncing back in the next year or two, and we're well on our way, which is super exciting. Yeah. And, and that kind of puts it all together. The art part is has always been part of me and can never go away. And I'll do a, a show of some new sculptures once a year or every other year. Sure. I've learned how to do that very quickly because I've never had a lot of time for it. I have a studio and I might stop by my studio for 15 minutes at a time for weeks on end, just stop, do three things, come back. So I, I, you know, I described it this way to somebody a while ago and it made sense. I see it as a river yeah. and not a series of statues. Yeah. That's so cool. Because if you got to make statues, that takes time. You know, I need four hours set aside for this. How am you know, and then you wait till you have that four hours. I just don't look at it that way. I just look at it. It's all the same thing. Right. It's all towards the same end. And I'm just going to keep chipping away at it. Yeah. And then whenever I look up, it's like, oh, wow. My mom said it best years ago. She said, my son, he does a lot. And some of it's pretty good. <laughs> Sounds like something a mom would say. I love it. 
Well, the reason I ask that is I've shared in the on the podcast in the past, I have a lot of personal passions too that are outside of the work I do day to day. But to your point, it's not so much the output, it's the outcome you're focusing on, which is really about the journey, right? You're just mm-hmm. learning all the time and integrating all the parts of you. So I found that fascinating when I was researching you and definitely wanted to ask the question. Let me ask you this. If you had a couple secrets of success to pass on as we're rounding out our time together today, what are some of the core truths you've come to live by as a leader, as a marketer, as an artist, any of those things? Sure. Um, well, I, I really believe in saying yes as much as I often, as, as much as I can. I, I really believe in the power of yes. Yeah. And making no, and I learned some of this from Ben, making no assumptions, everything always being on the table, mm. trying to leave your ego out of it, which we all struggle with greatly. Absolutely. And so that that's always been the, the main thing with me is that I want to see what's possible. And I don't care where that comes from. I don't need to own it. Sure. I just want to be able to see it. And then if it's there, then let's go do it. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, if we need to spend time mourning our losses or running down why something went wrong, fine, we can do that to get it out of our system. Well, let's get back on yeah. leaning in into yes and and I don't mind if it gets, you know, if you get dirty with it a little bit or if you get beat up with it or if you if it's hard or or any of those things, th- that's perfectly okay. In fact, that's necessary. That kind of tells you that you're on the right track. So yeah. I want to see when we bring people into this organization and in general, the people I, I want to be around, I, I like to see people who are like always ready, like very at the ready. Sure. Um, you, know, you know, put me in. I can do it. I'll take it. Yes. Um, very curious, very curious. I mean, it's one thing to do 10,000 hours of something and just check the clock. And it's a very different thing to do it with curiosity. Yes. Two very different people at the end of that. And then you got to finish strong on whatever you're doing. Because if you finish strong, you're not haunted by loose ends. Yep. And you can, totally. you can lean back into whatever's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Well, you're my kind of person. I totally agree with this idea that it's okay to do hard things. I mean, that's why we call the show Marketing Sweats, right? Like our job is not easy every day. But I definitely want to say thank you for saying yes to this opportunity because I believe in the connections that can come from these kinds of conversations. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to symantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. Let me leave you with this. What's a question that you would have for another? It's the last question I ask everybody. If I could pass something on in the universe, what's something you're wrestling with that you'd love to get some advice around? So I I thought about that for a minute. The question I would have for another, the question that I'm asking myself a lot now, probably more than ever, is looking at our world today and looking at all the concerns so many people have and the divisions we have. Mm-hmm. And the struggles we have with our family and 
working remotely and what's going to happen next and uncertainty and all of that, I keep asking myself as a leader, how can I be a bridge? Mm. As a leader, how can I create unity? Mm-hmm. And as a leader, how can I be the the mechanism for that connectivity? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot different than how some of us were, were raised to be a leader, which was be consistent, have the vision, set the agenda, mm. get input and consensus, do it on a foundation of trust. Right. And then, you know, make those hard decisions when they need to be made, but empower your people to succeed and sure. make sure there's, you know, someone taught me a long time ago, Rick, everyone will get to the right place if they know where they're going to begin with. Right. <laughs> and yeah. So that's sort of how you're taught as a leader. But now it's more complex. Yeah. Because you don't know where you're going, right? There's so much uncertainty. There's uncertainty. And then along with that, the people in our organizations are expecting more from their organizations. They want to have more conversations. They want to have town halls about issues of the day. Their needs are, are deeper and more complex for sure. sure. And so as I listen to that and see that, we're all going through our training and, and, and all these things, you know, you want to understand different generations and different mindsets and people from different backgrounds. Right. And so I, I look at that and say, okay, how can I add that to my toolkit? How can I become really good at being the bridge, providing connectivity, mm-hmm. and still keeping that focused on the business outcomes at hand? Yeah, that's a big question. I definitely will <laughs> be looking into that. You don't I think have the answer? With that too. You don't have <laughs> the answer, Missy? I mean, that's why I've been no. here the last hour, because you were going to give me the answer. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I tend to think of myself as a pretty facilitative leader who draws ideas out of people, but you're right. I mean, how do we connect all those dots and move forward together? It's a big, big issue for us it, leaders, it for is. sure. Especially if you see yourself in the service leadership mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that authoritative a mandated leadership mindset is just no longer valid nope, in any nope. way. No, and it's not. it hasn't been for a while. And the last 18 months have, uh, I think, put the nail in that coffin. Absolutely. Well, I have so enjoyed getting to know you at a deeper level, and I cannot wait to share this conversation. How can folks get in touch with you or kind of see some of your work? Well, first, it's billups.com. That's easy, B I L L U P S.com. Rick.Robinson at Billups.com. Or if you go to primitivepop.net, P-R-I-M-I-T-I-V-E-P-O-P, yeah. primitivepop.net or primitivepopla on Instagram, or just look up Rick Robinson's Steel Sculpture. But look, Misty, thank you so much for allowing me to share that story and Absolutely. listen to my passions. I feel very grateful and blessed. So thank you. No, thank you for opening up our eyes today and thinking about outdoor media a little bit differently than we might have otherwise. So can't wait to share the episode and I will definitely be in touch soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. Well, I loved learning more about Rick Robinson, both personally and professionally. He's one of these people that's crazy smart about his craft, which I thought was media, but in actuality, his passions and story are so much deeper than his day job. I sincerely encourage you to get in touch with Rick, follow him on social media, ask him to your next event. For now, I would ask that you like this episode, please download all of season four or even seasons one, two, and three at marketingsweats.com. Subscribe and leave a review. We'll talk soon, marketers.